0: Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We will be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew Fiverr. If you're a football fan or maybe you just watched the Super Bowl not too long ago, you may have heard the football idea called route concepts. Uh, If you're not a football fan, I'll explain it. Throughout a football game, what happens is the offensive plays will change. There'll be one play, they'll change to the next play, they'll change to the next play. But throughout the game, they'll have certain concepts that will not change. For instance, if you want to put stress on the opposing team, you can run two of your players at one of their players, and they can't guard both of them. We'll do that. We'll call it a vertical concept. Or you can bring two of your players from one side of the field all the way over against one defender on the other side of the field. That's a flood concept. So you get the idea. If you're a football fan, you know that these concepts invade the whole game even when the play changes. I bring this up because the book of Matthew kind of works like this. Uh, The book of Matthew has many different chapters, but it has some concepts that pervade Throughout the book, and I want to bring a couple of them up to you because this week, even though we have a different passage than last week, you're going to see some of the same concepts appearing. So, what I want to look at first is a verse from earlier in Matthew 5. We've already preached this verse, and I'm going to join this verse with a verse later in the book of Matthew to make this point. So, in Matthew 5, verse 16, Famously, Jesus will say, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's one idea. The second idea I want to put before you is in Matthew 13, verse 44, where we hear this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that your man found and he covered it up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So you have two short verses and they're uniting to form one deep long truth that goes throughout Matthew and here's the truth. The truth is if you find Christ as your treasure your character is going to change it's going to shine forth as a light and people are going to see that light and they're going to say I want your God I want to glorify your God because you are so shiny and I know the shininess is not coming from you it's coming from this God that you treasure treasure Christ shine your character forward and others will glorify God we see this played out in the life of David Livingston. You may know who David Livingston is. He lived in the 1800s. He's a famous missionary. He's an abolitionist. He's also an explorer. And his role was to go to Africa to pave a way for the gospel in the 1800s. And if you read his biography, you'll find all kinds of interesting, crazy stories. Here's one of them. He was living in a village, and the village had a problem that our village doesn't have today. Their problem was lion attacks. Lions were coming into the village and they were grabbing goats and cattle and sheep and threatening humans with a big problem. So one day, David Livingston and some of his friends, one of his friends named Mabawai, go out and they say, we're gonna hunt down these lions. We're gonna take care of this problem. So they go out into the jungle there to find these lions out into the prairie. And they're walking along and all of a sudden they get separated from the rest of their team and they turn around to Ben And there they see this lion hiding. And he's hiding much like a cat in your house might hide. They hide their head and the backside of their body stays out, but they think they're hiding. So this lion is hiding like this. So David Livingston says, I'm going to take this lion out. He aims his gun. He unloads both of his barrels into this lion and he nails him in the back. And he pauses and he looks and the lion turns and he looks at him and he charges <laughs> he doesn't die instead he charges right at David Livingston he nails him Livingston falls off the ledge that he was shooting from and he kind of blacks out when he wakes up he realizes that he's sideways inside the lion's mouth the lion has him and Livingston's words is he shook me like a terrier will shake a rat you know <clears throat> That's what happens to him, and he hears his arm crack. He's broken his arm. He looks over, sideways, and he sees his buddy, Mbabwe fixing to take aim at the lion. The guy fires, but his gun misfires. But it distracts the lion. The lion drops Livingston, runs after Mbabwe. Once he gets there, finally the lion starts hemorrhaging from the shots from Livingston's rifle, and he dies before he can eat in both. These stories came up again and again in the life of David Livingston. Now what I want to point you to this morning is what he said later about his journeys and his crazy dangerous life in Africa. We have a couple of his writings and later he's giving a speech to students at Cambridge and they're asking the question, how in the world could you leave England in the comforts to go to the dangers of Africa. This is what David Livingston said. He said, people talk about the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa and lion attacks. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in helpful activity, in the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, the bright hope of the glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view, with such a thought, It is emphatically no sacrifice to go to Africa and be attacked by lions. So my question is, how can David Livingston say, with a straight face and a crooked arm, how could he say it was no sacrifice to go get attacked by lions? Well, we have a key in his writings later, when he was about 60 years old, we read in Livingston's journal and he says this, he said, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again on my birthday dedicate my whole self to Thee. What he's trying to say is giving up the comforts of home for the danger of lion attacks and other things in Africa is only not a sacrifice if I have a greater treasure in my life. I never had to give up what was most important to me because what was most important to me was Jesus. David lived out this principle that we see today in the book of Matthew. Treasure Christ, shine your character forward. His character shine with a guy who didn't quit when things get hard. If you do that, others will glorify your God. So today, I believe God wants to speak to you in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. I believe he's calling you to give something up. Your claim to yourself. Uh, These are things that we usually view as our own rights. um, But they're actually sins that we hang on to. The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to say my kingdom is much different than what you're used to. What you perceive. What the world understands. I'm going to turn the world's thoughts upside down. Especially your heart. And all the things you like to claim as yours and yours alone. So buckle up as we go into this chapter. Jesus is aiming for the deepest recesses of your heart. Let's look together here. We'll begin in verse 31. Jesus is going to speak about relinquishing your rights. I put them in quotation marks because by rights... He's talking about things you have no right to at all, but you like to think that you do. These broken freedoms that we create in our minds and in our hearts that stop us from fully committing to Jesus. The first one he speaks to is our right to roam. He's speaking in the context of marriage. He begins in verse 31 of chapter 5, and he says, It was also said that whoever divorces his wife Let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So last week, just previously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had made it clear that lust was tantamount to adultery. They're the same thing in the heart. They're the same rebellion now he's naturally going to move on in marriage to talk about divorce and he's going to use the structural pattern of antithesis he's going to say you've heard this it said this but you're understanding it wrongly here is the contrast here is how you should be reading the bible here's how you should be understanding all of life his teaching style is going to be very much not this but that and we'll see it here He begins by talking about divorce in the kingdom and he's going to reference an Old Testament passage found in Deuteronomy 24. What had happened as people were reading Deuteronomy 24 they were misunderstanding the point. The point they were getting from that text was simply this. If you want out of your marriage just wait until you're displeased and walk away. That was what Jesus had to speak into. That was the prevailing attitude here. Don't you have a right to roam? Don't you have a right to leave when anything gets tough? Explore your options. Experience true freedom. This is how people were viewing marriage. It's not unlike how people view it today. We actually have some surviving accounts from the religious leaders of the day, how they would counsel people on marriage. Uh, premarital counseling, if you would. Records survive from Jesus' day. And they're horrific. Here are two examples. Example one, just what people were hearing about how to act in their marriage. Husbands, you may get a divorce if your wife burns the supper. Uh, that's what Jesus had to speak against. It's awful. Second example that we find in history, Like premarital counselors were giving young couples. Husbands, you may divorce your wife if you see another woman you think is prettier. Terrible chauvinistic view of marriage that was a part of the world's kingdom. But Jesus is saying, I ain't having that. My kingdom is much sweeter. I'm turning that upside down. He's not going to say, well, if you're not satisfied, go somewhere else. We see this in our culture today. Famously, celebrities will get divorces and then they will speak about their right to roam. Actress Anna Faris expressed as much not long ago when she divorced uh, Chris Pratt. She came out and said, hey, everybody, life is too short to be in relationships where you feel everything isn't fully right, or, or somebody doesn't have your back, or... Somebody doesn't fully value you. Don't be afraid to feel your independence. That's the way of the world. She's living in the kingdom of the world. But Jesus will say today, I have something much, much better than freedom from commitment. In verse 32, he explains that everyone who pursues divorce makes his wife commit adultery. If a guy marries a divorced woman, he commits adultery. If the man divorces his wife, except for the concession of fornication, the man is at fault. Now the Bible has much broader teaching here on divorce and marriage, and we'll get to it when we get to Matthew 19. Jesus will say more, but the point here today that he's aiming at is my kingdom is radically different from the world. In my kingdom... When challenges come up in marriage, you give up your right to bolt. Later, when Jesus will teach on this idea of radical commitment to your spouse through thick and thin, he'll give this lesson to his disciples and they're all huddled up and Jesus says, you know, marriage is for life. It's meant to be forever once you join in there. And his disciples will react. We have their reaction. They actually say, oh, I see what you're saying, Jesus. You're saying it's better never to get married. Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, find me as your treasure in your marriage and that will outweigh any supposed freedoms or rights that you have. Find your joy through Christ in your marriage and you won't have any reason to bolt. Now, where does this leave us today? Well, if you are married, you realize that within marriages we have seasons. We have springs, where everything is warming up, blossoming, it's fresh. But you also have in marriage allergy seasons, where it seems like you wake up and you're allergic to each other. Then you'll have summers, where everything is warm and bright. And you have an autumn where things start to change colors and you have some cold, dark winters. Marriages are tough. But the answer is not leaving, Jesus says here in this verse. It's clinging to Jesus and allowing him to satisfy you through his ordained purposes in your marriage growth. Your desire will not be satisfied in roaming He's dealing with people tempted to leave when times get tough. And I know that you feel that temptation too. But Jesus is talking to you directly today when he says, stay, find your satisfaction in me. Author Jean Williams, no relation. She did her PhD in the Puritan experience of the enjoyment of God. She's got a robust understanding of, of what it means to treasure Christ intellectually. But also she found herself in a marriage that she never expected. So she wrote about it. Not long after getting married her husband got cancer. and So some of the dreams she had were never going to come true. And then she had a child. And the child was born with a chronic disease. He was always sick. Which means he was ever more in pain he was always in pain so here she is and her family her marriage looks way different than she ever thought it would now the flavor of her pain and struggle is going to be different than yours but i want to read to you what she says because you have the same king and i think it can be very helpful here's what she said she said i would have never have written so much hardship into the recent pages of our life Uh, but I look back as I look back I'm surprised to realize that in some ways the suffering is the part I'm most grateful for it's helped me see just how weak I am and it's driven me to rely on God's strength that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew drives you to God it chased me into his arms and it deepened my knowledge of him she's treasuring Christ it compels me to set my hope on eternity rather than this life, and it moves me to comfort others with the comfort I've received. I don't fear the future like I used to because God has been with me in the darkest times. I've tested Him, and He has proved true. When I hear Jean tell her story and see how she's running into God more deeper and deeper, she shines. But her shining isn't from herself innately. I want the God that Jean has. And Jesus says, you can have me today. You can treasure Christ. Shine your character and others will glorify God. We could say more about marriage and divorce. But let's go on to what Jesus says. The nature of the Sermon on the Mount is he's just going to give you a blurb and bring up hard topics and then he'll move right on. It's because he's getting at total ownership of your heart. Next, he moves on to another right. Here, he's calling you to relinquish your right to renege. What does renege mean? Well, it simply means to go back on a promise. Jesus was dealing with folks who were prone to go back on their promise. And so he digs into it here. Verse 33 He said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, see the antithesis, you've heard this, but I say this, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for this is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, Yet, what you say may simply, let it just simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, what in the world's happening here? Why is he talking about oaths so much? Here's what's going on Jesus is once again showing that his kingdom, his way of life, is vastly different than any other path to follow. So he brings up the subject of oaths. What does oaths mean in that context? Well, In the Old Testament, in Exodus 20 and elsewhere, God had addressed the idea of vain oaths, speaking a promise in vain. By the time Jesus hits the scene, he runs into a little bit different problem. People were misunderstanding the Old Testament, and they had the habit of making really... uh, vast promises about what they do for instance if you were in a business deal with someone the guy might say I really need you to deliver those olives over to my house by Thursday and last time you said you were going to do it you didn't do it I didn't see you for two weeks and so the delivery guy might say well I swear to you by Jerusalem oh Jerusalem I will have your delivery on time Then what was happening is the people with deceitful hearts were actually using these oaths to weasel out of commitments. They might say, well, the the oath to Jerusalem gives me an extra 10 days, you understand. Things like that. Jesus saw right through it and he says, at the very heart of my kingdom is the value of truthfulness. We're doing things differently here. He even goes to say we don't need oaths at all because in the perfect kingdom everyone will keep their word. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. grabbed a hold of this principle of keeping your word as he made one of his most famous speeches. Every that he's ever made roughly 200 years after America was formed, Martin Luther King was giving a speech to people gathered in Washington, about 2,000 people there. This is what he famously said. He had oath-breaking on his mind when he says, We have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note, which every American has to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. When Martin Luther King went to call America to charge about racism, he framed it in this language of America, you're breaking your promise and that's a horrible thing to do. Jesus is presenting today a kingdom where all promises are kept. It's much better. Imagine for a moment living in a world where you could trust every word that everyone ever said to you. Verse 34, Jesus says, "Let's do away with these oaths at all. These fancy trumped-up I swear by God. I swear by Jerusalem. We don't need that, he says in verse 34. Why? Because in my kingdom your word should be enough. He's basing this reality on the the idea of God himself being a God of truth. Moses, for instance, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and following, he said, I proclaim the name of the Lord and I ascribe greatness to our God. He's a rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Later on in the passage, Jesus will say, I want you to be like your father. Your father's perfect, strive for perfection. God is a God of truth. As Zambian pastor Chapo Mwanza once said, he wrote, God is the author, source, and determiner of truth. Everything he says is true and his word is the final standard of truth. The person, nature, and work of God correspond to the perfect and true nature of God. As important it is that God is truth, that's not precisely the focus of Jesus here. What I want to focus on is what we see in the context. He's speaking about your perceived right to back out of engagements whenever it's inconvenient to you. This is how much of your life he wants. We all are tempted when something's inconvenient. How can I weasel out of what I said? Maybe you tell a half truth. You agree to meet with a friend, but back out when something better pops up. You feel after all, what right do they have over my time? Maybe you don't feel like going somewhere so you exaggerate some sniffles into the bubonic plague. "Ah, I can't be there. I'm so sick. I just can't make it. Jesus is even speaking into that part of your life. Why should I be bound by a previous commitment? Come on. I don't have a right over my weekend, surely. I know I said this, but surely I have the right to be in control here. It's really what he's getting at. When we want to control situations, that's when we deceive in order to seize control. A desire to control your own kingdom leads you to tell lies. So let's return here to our anchor concepts that I mentioned at the first, if you treasure Christ your character will shine and others will want to glorify the father they will want your God if we're seeing Jesus as our treasure we're going to want to yield to his control and then we'll be willing to follow through on our commitments even if it feels like ah, I don't really want to do that but we'll yield to God's control uh, writer Cindy Madsen shared that seeing Jesus' beauty in loving others helps her to submit to his control. She realized this pull within her to want to control situations and even willingness to uh, deceive people. Here's what she writes. I think it's helpful. She says that all the gospels portray Jesus as the lover of souls. The most remarkable thing about Jesus of Nazareth wasn't his miracles it was his love for people. The idol of control twists people into obstacles or outcomes. They're pawns or roadblocks that need to be dealt with appropriately. So what do we do? We use deceit to get around him. But she says Jesus never treats people that way. This is how she's treasuring Christ. He didn't in the gospel account. He doesn't today. He never postured for control. He noticed the downcast. He moved toward the weak. He invited the weary. He bore the sins of the wandering sheep. My friend, if you and I want to put the idol of control to death, we must start, stop treating people like hurdles in our path to success. Start seeing them as eternal souls created in the image of God. I think she's on to something here. I think we can learn from her. See how beautiful Jesus is in loving people. Know that it's safe to yield to him. It's safe to yield to his control. You must not try to control all of your relationships with deceitful words. Instead, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no because you're trusting, trusting in the control of Jesus. That's your light that you can shine before others this week. It's very practical. Jesus steps right into your today. This week, you'll probably have a chance to either give a clear yes, you can count on me, or be a waffler. Jesus says, Submit to my control, and you'll be freed up to be a man or woman of your word. He keeps going here. Verse 38. He's going to dig even deeper about relinquishing your rights to come into his kingdom next he's going to talk about relinquishing your right to revenge again when I say right I'm talking about your perception in your mind when somebody does you wrong you feel like I have a right to revenge Jesus says wait a minute my kingdom is upside down here it is verse 38 Again, Jesus is going to display the upside-down nature of his kingdom here, and he's going to do it by addressing a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 24, that's where we see the famous eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth passage. But a lot of people don't understand what was going on here. I'll attempt to explain it. In the Old Testament, what you had was a culture largely dominated by tribal warfare, A picture of the Hatfields and McCoy. If you've read that story or seen that movie, what happens is someone insults someone from the Hatfields. And so a Hatfield will go to the McCoy and he'll slap one of them. So a McCoy will go to the Hatfield and he'll stab one with a knife. So the Hatfield will go back to the McCoys and he'll stab three of them. So they'll get fire and they'll burn down the entire house. It's an escalation of violence That was very prevalent in the Old Testament culture. So God gave his people a law. And the law was simply this. We don't need this to uh, escalate like this. Justice is when the punishment fits the crime. So let an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Be what we rule a society with. It was meant to be a government code. It was never meant to be used for personal vendettas. And in Jesus' day, that's precisely how people were using it. They were using this text to justify getting individual relational revenge. But Jesus says here, there's no place for such petty tit-for-tat ethics in his kingdom. This retaliation must stop. He describes in verse 39, this is a Mideastern slap in the face, it's an insult it's not so much a violent crime he's talking about it's more the context of a personal insult like maybe uh an antebellum you you have people slapping each other in the face with the glove just to oh how dare you insult my honor that's kind of what he's talking about here with the slap in the face you know how he said you're supposed to react to that it's not complex but it's very profound he says absorb it somebody insults you I want you to absorb it. Why? How can he say that? He can say that because if someone insults you, they haven't really taken anything from you of vital importance. If I am your treasurer, you truly haven't lost much when someone insults you. That allows you to absorb it. He'll go on to say... Um, If someone sues you, you don't have to counter-sue them. Just give them what you want. Again, the same principle. If I'm your treasure, what are they really taking from you in their lawsuit? The practice of marching people was a Roman practice. If the government comes and asks you to do something ridiculous, like march a mile, it's what they used to do in the Roman Empire. Jesus says, go ahead and march too. How can he say this? Well, remember, his kingdom values are upside down from your own. The point is clear here. If someone wrongs you, give up your right to revenge. I've spoken before about life in my house, in my kitchen with eight people. Our refrigerator is kind of like the refrigerator of a small business. If you open it up. You'll find lunches or snacks with people's names written all on them. And it's, it's known. Don't take another man's snack and yet it happens. And I watch in my family and in my own heart this complicated calculus of oh, he took my two liter so I can take his leftovers here and make it my own. this petty revenge keeps popping up. By the way, I have a question that has to do with revenge. Do you know why the shrimp does not share his candy? Because Asa, he's a little shellfish. (laughs) A little joke for the kids. Jesus is saying at the heart of your revenge, you liked it, Hunter, at the heart of your revenge is shellfishness. It's a problem of the heart. And it's so much a message of our media culture. Have you ever walked into a restaurant and you've heard the Muzak playing in the background? And without even trying to, you all of a sudden you start tapping your foot. You didn't walk in there wanting to jam to a song, but it's, it's in the background. It's some 80s song. You might even start humming along before you know it. And that's how the message of revenge is in our culture. Just look at the movies we love. John Wick, maybe you love John Wick. I don't want to spoil anything, but the plot hinges on revenge for a puppy dying. <laughs> That's what the plot is about. The Count of Monte Crisco, a good movie, but it's all about this guy steaming with revenge. And if you watch these movies, you end up rooting for the main character. Why? Because it sucks you into the kingdom of Satan that you want to be in in the deepest part of your heart. Jesus said there's no place for that type of thinking in my kingdom. Pastor Sean read the verse earlier. It's good to return to it. 1 Peter 3.9 Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But you'll get to reviling in a minute. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a Blessing, And in the context we read that verse. The true blessing is the eyes of the Father shining upon you. Jesus is making a comparison. The joy you get from coming into my kingdom is far greater than the perceived joy you get in revenge. So relinquish your right to that. Later in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul will write about these things. And it's a good perspective. It's very healthy. He writes in Romans 12, 19. That you have to remember. What drives you to revenge often is a sense of justice. But your sense of justice is broken. It's marred by the fall. It's messed up. But God's justice is perfect. That's why Paul will say in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Part of living in Christ's kingdom is trusting that God's punishment of someone you think is sinning is much more robust than yours could ever be. Trust me to handle these punishments. They will get justice, not broken justice that you think of, but my perfect justice. I will deliver it. Furthermore, Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. All that's satanic. Those people that are attacking you, they're not respecting you. They're arguing with you. They're putting you down. I will crush all of that. A lot of this trust is pinpointed On the notion of timing. If you have to get over a vengeful heart. What you're saying is. I have to trust God in his timing of justice. And justice might not come for another 10 years. 20 years. 100 years. But I know. That the justice of Christ is perfect. No one who ever wronged you. Is going to get away with it before God. He says vengeance is mine that's one thing that makes jesus so appealing so delightful Is he's perfect in his justice there's one long complicated story from church history it involves the famous pastor theologian jonathan edwards edwards was a great guy but he also had flaws just like any of us and at one point he got in a dust-up with his local church he ended up being fired there was a controversy over the lord's supper so the church had a vote as to whether to remove him as pastor and the vote was 23 in favor of edward staying and 207 in favor of him leaving that is a sign from god he should no longer be a pastor at that church a lot of people were out to get him over perceived slights during the conflict and controversy. Later, a friend of Edwards who was walking with him during that time, this huge, uh, hurtful, scandalous part of his life, he wrote about Edwards, and this is what he said, especially about Edwards' attitude. I think it can be instructive. has some good phrases here. He says, Edwards appeared like a man of God, I grab this, whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good. Overbalancing all of the ills of life. Key in on a couple phrases there. That's what Jesus is offering you today. Is nothing short of a happiness that is completely out of reach of your enemies. Whatever they do to you. They can't shake your joy tree. It's out of reach. If you put it in Jesus, not just out of reach. This man said it was out of balance. It was overbalanced. What he had in Jesus far outweighed what he had in this position at the church. So when it was taken away, he had more than was taken away. It was overbalanced by the weight of the glory of Christ. Why not put this week your happiness out of the reach of all of your enemies. Put your treasure in someone who overbalances all the personal slights you might incur. That someone is Jesus. Treasure Christ. Shine forth in your character and others will want the God that you have. Finally, Jesus will wrap it up talking about relinquishing your right to revile. Listen to verse 43. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Some of you may not be prone to plot elaborate Acts of revenge, you're just not wired that way, but you are prone to hold a grudge for years. Your outward appearance appears like, ah, he's someone who would never want to get back. But on the inside, you're steaming. Your heart is closed off in hate. These words are meant to free you up, meant to show you a better path. Jesus says, Your enemies deserve the affections of your heart. That's hard talk. How can he say that? Not only that, your enemies deserve your prayers. Verse 45 connects this with your status as a child of God there. Connects it with your relationship to your father. What's the connection? Between not reviling and loving your enemies and your relationship, your status as a child of God... It's not that if you love your enemies, you earn the the affections of the Father. That's not what he's talking about. It's not a merit-based system. But what he's saying here, if you are born of God, you will simply be like him. A few years ago, I was on a family vacation. And as family vacations with extended family tend to go, there was a point in the evening where all the adults were sitting around the table, finishing up supper, having dessert, drinking coffee, and all the kids were upstairs playing, right? We had adult time over here, kitty time over there. They were younger. And I'll never forget, at one point during the evening, one of my children came down, about four years old at the time, and he shocked us all. I kid you not, without provocation, my child launched into a preschool comedy routine. Man. Joke after joke, he just spewed out. The jokes were flying that day, my friend. Many of them were kind of funny, but others had no sense of a punchline. And he kept on going and he kept on going. It's true by nature or nurture, sons are going to mimic their dads. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying here. Your love must mimic The love of your Father. Love like you have been loved by God. Here's one prayer I read uh, this week. I think it'd be helpful. One pastor prayed this Father, don't let our hurts become a band of vigilante marauders. Don't let our vulnerable hearts become gardens for planting of roots of resentment and bushes of bitterness. Keep us from medicating our pain foolishly. Father, as Jesus has forgiven us, so help us want to forgive others. Make the gospel more defining than our pain. Write stories of redemption and restoration with the ink of hurt and your grace. To that I say, amen. Jesus can do it. For motivation, Paul reminds us in Romans 5 verse 10. Of course, we were once enemies of God. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God loved you even while you were an enemy. He sent his son to die, to take the punishment for your sins while you were an enemy. That's the greatest love. 1 Peter chapter 2 said he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness including putting away our petty grudges. By his wounds you've been healed for you were strained like sheep. That means you were an enemy. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. You have been empowered by God to love as he has loved you. Notice back in Matthew 5, verse 46. He brings up the idea of a reward or a treasure. For if you loved only those who loved you, what reward you have. Or otherwise, what does that say about your reward? If you're only going to love those who love you, it belittles the reward that you have. Earlier in verse 12, Matthew had wrote, written, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Your reward is great. When you fail to love your enemies, you put smudges on the treasure that is Jesus Christ. Treasure Christ. Shine your character and others will glorify God. Do this by relinquishing your right to have reviling in your heart. He goes on to say, even tax collectors can love their tax collector buddies. Why? Because they have common interest in cheating people. Don't just be someone who loves you. Instead, turn the kingdom upside down and love those who are obviously against you. Not long ago, a dentist became semi-famous By buying the decaying tooth of John Lennon. John Lennon of the Beatles passed away years ago. But someone still had his tooth. He'd given it to a former housekeeper. And she sold it. And this dentist bought it for $33,000. What does that say about our value system in America? We could have done some good things with that $33,000. I read online an article. Pastor Scotty Smith was responding to that. And he said this, he said, I can shake my head and laugh at these things, somebody paying $33,000, but what's not as laughable is the fickle value system of my own heart. In some seasons of life, what people think and say of me has mattered too much. Having enough, being enough, having control over pain, not losing control over narratives, these things have no value at an auction, but they control one's life, schedule, and destiny, In my most sane, free, and favorite moments of life, I celebrate with the Apostle Paul. Everything is worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. Life isn't measured by what I own, but by who owns me. That's Jesus' message to you today. Treasure Christ. Let your character shine. And others will want your God. They'll want to glorify him. They'll want to worship him. Many of us parents want nothing more than our children. To be born again. again, To spend forever and eternity in heaven. Jesus is saying this is the way. You want your children to glorify God? Treasure me. Your character will change. And the people closest to you will glorify God god so as you read through the sermon on the mount you'll see that jesus is calling you to give up incomplete broken pleasures for the deeper joys of jesus this is going to shape you into the person he wants you to be earlier i mentioned the story of david livingston as was the custom of the time when he was in Africa he often had to leave his family his wife and his children for long stretches of time months at a time he wouldn't see them it was hard on David but we have his letters that he wrote back to his wife and his children I read one of them this week I think it's instructive I want to leave it with you here this is David Livingston famous missionary writing back to his kids and he's writing it in kind of kiddie language plus it's the 1800s so Might be hard to follow, but it's good. Here he says, Kids, I want you to be brave too, but not in the way of fighting elephants and lions. That's what David did. I wish you to be brave servants of Jesus. I wish you not to be afraid to own him. If others are ashamed to say, I won't sin because I love Jesus, my brave ones must say, I am his, the child of a king. I fear to sin Against him. Why would they fear? Because they would be losing a better treasure. Then he says, There are many naughty boys and girls who will laugh at you if you fear to sin or do and say naughty things, but never fear a laugh or a mocking. And here it is brave ones don't care who laughs if Jesus smiles. He was pointing his kids towards treasuring Christ, feeling the smile of Jesus, because it is the greater. Joy, my prayer, my hope for all of us this week is that we pursue the smile of Christ over the pleasures of sin. Let's pray together. Father, these words are not easy in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet many say it's the greatest sermon ever written down. Jesus simply saying, I want all of your heart. You're going to have to relinquish your perceived rights to get revenge. Or to roam free out of your commitments. Instead, God, you are pushing us to a greater upside down kingdom. Where the values are all turned around in a good way. Focused on you in Jesus Christ. God, turn our hearts this morning. We sang earlier, he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. Show us that by your spirit, reveal him to us, Father, that we might treasure Christ today so that others might glorify you. God, we pray this by the blood of Jesus. Amen.